Jeff Smith and welcome to the Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success and my aim is to share those secrets here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money and in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick how they overcame adversity to keep on going when times got tough. And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Matt Shope. Matt is an award-winning serial entrepreneur, author, keynote speaker, aspiring paella chef, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and Spanish coffee aficionado and addict. Now I've mentioned all of these things because they're totally relevant to Matt's life. And of course, they're all relevant to his being here on the show today. So to begin with, Matt found his love for business at the age of 10 years old when he started mowing lawns in his driving aim to buy big box for $200. Ten years later, while studying at Colorado State University, he learned about sales, marketing and business operations. He made lots of money in college, but then he spent three times what he'd earned. In March 2005, Matt got married. He was six figures in debt and working a job he hated as a loan officer. After hitting rock bottom and being laid off from that job, he then founded a company with his last $100. But then the company grew to more than $35 million in revenue. Now we want to find out exactly how he did that. He wrote his first book, Become an Award-Winning Company in 2011, and his second book called Painted Baby in 2003. He also has a passion to help others who are less fortunate than ourselves. Which is the Matt and Emily Shope Spain Study Abroad Scholarship, which is part of his foundation. So let's bring in the amazing man himself for him to share his secrets of success with us. Welcome to the show, Matt Shope. Hey Thank Matt, you. how are you doing today? I'm really good. I'm really excited to talk to you. We've had a few conversations prior to this and I'm pumped to just dig in. I want to know how you loved the uh, the coffee. <laughs> well, I've got that <laughs> as part of the show because, yeah, let's reveal. We spoke for only a couple of minutes because I always do a discovery chat to find out will we get on when we're talking together on camera and is your story right for the show? So, of course, we decided yes, because you're here today. Then after that little discovery chat, you sent me a little email. Hey, Jeff, what's your information? on? I'd like to send you something. 
What is that something? Well, we're going to talk about that in a little while. But this show is not about me. It's all about you. So I want to find out about your amazing business, the two books you've published. I want to find out if you're going to write another one. I'm sure there must be. But before we do all of that, I want to find out more about you, Matt. So where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? Yeah, thanks for asking. Love, love that question. I was born at, uh, in Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey, so northern New Jersey, and grew up until I was just before I turned 10 in Montclair. So I remember, you know, a couple of core memories, key memories from childhood is uh, dad. Dad was working, you know, full-time job. So he was out of the house working. Mom stayed home with the kids. I was the oldest of four and I was a really creative kid. I loved storytelling, was really good at math. So I'd go to school and they'd give me math and I'd finish an hour's worth of math in, a, in like four minutes. It, uh, I just it was great at math. Wow. And they, would, they wouldn't keep me busy. So I'd go rowdy up and rile up the friends and we'd talk about the uh, WWF wrestling that we just watched, you know, from previous Saturday night. So Hulk Hogan, I loved, I loved professional wrestling. And not only would we talk about it, we'd start wrestling, jumping off desks and just getting into trouble, right? So yeah. school was an environment for me where they didn't keep my creative mind busy enough. Um, I was told a lot, hey, you're a troublemaker. I was labeled, right? You're a troublemaker. Uh, you might have this up and coming attention deficit thing, right? Just sit down, shut up, do what you're told. And I just realized I didn't conform to that setting. And there was nothing in that setting that enhanced my interest in what I was about to find, which was business and entrepreneurship. Another big memory of childhood is I was really scared of the world. I was a very easy target to be bullied. And I was bullied pretty, pretty severely in lots of different ways, bullied and abused. And I didn't um, feel safe and secure and certain as a child. Uh, just the base human thing that any person needs, right? Safety and security and belonging. I didn't feel that. I didn't have that. So on one hand, it's this creative kid who, who can't find a place. I'm scared. And then we move from New Jersey to Northern Colorado to Loveland. How, how old are you at this stage, Matt? It's the summer. My, my birthday's in August, so it's like June. So I'm wrapping up being nine, about to turn 10, going into fifth grade. And we moved to Colorado, and it's a total culture shock. It's just a different, different world, different pace, different communication style. So it's different. So I got uprooted from things and then placed into Colorado. And that summer, as I started making friends in the neighborhood, uh, a couple of passions I had is I loved baseball. I really started following professional baseball, collecting baseball cards and wanted to be a baseball player. Uh, but I wasn't good at baseball. I played one season and found out that uh, I, I would have had a lot of practicing to do to get good at baseball. <laughs> <laughs> and in that same summer, this is when compact discs were coming out. And oh, uh, yes, I remember would be walking those, around yes. the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, the big boom box, right? So I'm riding the bike around the neighborhood, going to a friend's house. And oh, look, I got a boom box. Well, how'd you get that? My parents bought it for me. Just go ask your parents. So I asked mom and dad for $200 uh, for a boom box. And at that time, my my relationship with money was I made $4 a week to cut the, their grass with their lawnmower. And they said, well, do that math. You're good at math. That's going to take you all year, you know, four times 50. I said, well, I want it now. They said, well, go find a way to make your own money. 
we're not going to, they didn't, they didn't, that was the the best thing I could have ever been told, right? Go figure it out. You tell a 10 year old, go figure it out. They'll figure it out. So secret of success for me was I didn't, I wasn't handed the boom box, given the answer. They let my creativity and my energy just go out to get to work. So I said, cool, I'm going to take your lawnmower if that's okay. And I just knocked on doors. So I wasn't afraid to talk to people or share stories or go ask for what I wanted. And I was literally given Jeff free reign of the neighborhood with a lawnmower and a whole summer in front of me. And I made that $200 in the first couple days. And I think I ended up making between two and $3,000 at 10. And I've got it in this metal fishing tackle box. But, but here's what happened at a, at a deeper level, right? Looking back at my story um, is that was the first time that I felt this really deep sense of validation, appreciation, certainty, success, attaboy, pat on the back, and money just became, I started this relationship with money that ended up ultimately not being very healthy as I got into my business years of the, the millionaire business guy story. But I got, I got what I needed as a kid through business and money. And I found that I was really good at it. So it's kind of this double, double-edged sword, if you want to call it that. That's the origin story of being an entrepreneur, but it also created a very unhealthy relationship with, you know, as we, as we get more into my story, I, f- I thought the more money I made, the more value I would have as a man. And that's not true. Absolutely. And I had to really break that belief and that pattern. And that came through a lot of struggle and pain and finding out that in the pursuit of that money, um, I was not a nice person. I was not a friendly guy. I wasn't sending you coffee boxes back then. You know... <clears throat> I'm going to bring in a parallel story here, Matt, because you've obviously gone through a lot of change in your life, as have I. I've lived kind of the opposite story to you, which I'll allude to in a moment. But this thing about money, you know, I, I watched the TV show, uh, a chat show, and the guy interviewing was a guy called Ma- Michael Parkinson, which in the UK was like your number one chat show host. And he was used to have a famous guest on every week. And I watched this show. I was 12 years old. So I'm, I'm well into my 60s now. So you can imagine, I can remember this show from when I was 12. This is the impact that this story had on my life. And Michael Parkinson was interviewing a guy called, you might have heard of him, Tom Jones. The singer, Tom Jones, right? Yeah. It's not unusual, all, all, all those hits. And <laughs> so, so this is back in, I was 12, so it would have be been 1972. So Michael turned around to Tom Jones, he says, hey Tom, you've had uh, number one records, you've done all of these things in your life. You've obviously earned a lot of money. So Tom Jones, he said, yeah, I've, I've not done too bad, you know. And then, then comes the question, which your story reminds me of. The question was, Tom, has this money changed you? Now, his answer is what was so profound to me, and this is what he said. Money doesn't change people. It allows them to be the person who they really are. And I thought, well, I'm 12, Matt. And I thought, wow. And then he carried on saying, he said, you know, 
When people don't have money, they have to be subservient. They have to do as they're told. They have to conform in order to get the money that they want. And then when these people get money and they don't have to behave in that way anymore, they become the person they really are. And I thought, wow. And then I've, throughout my life, I've met with many, many successful people, many, many millionaires, and this is what I'll say. Many of them, they're really not nice people. And, and I come back to what Tom Jones said before. So that's all I have on to say, say on the subject, because this is about you and your story. So I want to come back now. I just thought that was particularly fitting because you said I had to change my relationship with money. I wasn't a very nice guy. So let's let's pick up from yeah. there. Yeah. And, and I would dovetail onto what you just said is, and I've heard that uh, saying before. I, I don't know if Tom Jones was the original, but I've also heard that it, you know, money just makes you more of who you already are. But I love that perspective of, you know, hey, I had to kind of be quiet and conform and now I don't because I have these resources and now the real me is going to come out. I would say in my in my experience, thinking of what Tom Jones said is um, as I've grown as a person, because here's what I think about business, right? Is your business will only grow to the degree that you do as a person. It will only be as successful as you are getting better as a person by just getting a little better every day. And uh, your team, you can't lead a team. You can't lead others. You can't pour into others or teach others or inspire others if you haven't figured out your own stuff. So for me, a real key to my success has been just exploring my story and going back and looking at it different times, different angles, peeling back layers, flying over it, under it, through it. And it's messy. And in finding that, yeah, I had a really big shift because I went from uh, let's say zero to 10, I grew up bad foundation, bad soil would be the chapter of that life from 10 to 20. It was just figuring it all out. I had to figure a lot of things out on my own, figure out how to build and what to build on. And then I get to the 20, I graduate high school, worked the hourly jobs. And I worked for a college painting company in college and was plugged into a system and a model that they had that allowed me to take my creativity, my work ethic, all of these things and go make a lot of money. And in doing that, I was around a lot of people that were making a lot of money that were doing a lot of drugs and alcohol and chasing women. And that's what I did. I'm just figuring out life and I'm doing things based on examples of things that I thought were the right examples wherever I saw them. And uh, then I get to this point, you know, when I'm 20, when I find my faith in the back of a police car, like I, I was almost dead in a field on New Year's morning after like every weekend, I was just getting, getting wrecked and wasted. And at that at that point, I really changed what I was going to build my life on. And I had a different and a higher purpose and a higher calling for my life. So that finding of that faith, it actually stopped the drugs right away. I actually kept okay. drinking. I kept doing I, I, some, some I, I, other things. I have to hold you there for a moment and come back to this point. We can't, yeah. we can't just drop a bomb and say, hey, I made a lot of money. I did alcohol. I did drugs. I <laughs> did women. And then I end up in this field almost dead. Then yeah, I chased then, women. Then, you, said, <laughs> you said dead women. I said chase. You don't put words in my mouth, Jeff. My wife, my wife is watching this. And you've met Emily. <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry, Emily. That was all you. me. No, I'm, I'm totally yeah, yeah, I, know. I think I think I'm sure. funny. If this podcasting thing doesn't work out for me, I, I've been told I should stay away from comedy because I'm not that funny. <laughs> but I try. But I try. Okay. So you 
There are drugs. <laughs> there is alcohol. There are women. And you end up almost dead in this field and end up on the back seats of a police car. So tell us about... <laughs> now we can recover the, <laughs> the alcohol, the drugs and the women and how yeah. you ended up in a field. So tell us about that first. So, so just as you know, money became this pursuit for me, Yep. Money became this pursuit for me. And then as I started making it and, you know, you'll become the people that you spend the most time with. So I'm spending a lot of time with a lot of other people in this college painting environment. And this wasn't the company as a whole. It was the the group I ran ar around with within the company. They were doing drugs and alcohol. And I'm like that, you know, it's what my friends are doing. I should give that, give that a try. But what I was really searching for was this deep love and acceptance that, that I never had and I didn't I didn't love myself. I didn't know how to love myself. I didn't know what that example looked like or felt like. So I was finding it at money and the money felt good. And then with the money came the drugs and the drinking. So I'm like, that makes me feel real good. Um it numbs this pain and it allows you to just gloss over something that you really don't want to address at the core level, which is like I got bullied. I felt like hated like I was worthless as a kid. So I'm going to make money. Now I'm going to do drugs. Now I'm going to do alcohol. And then, right, like as men, we're wired. Um, however you think you got here as a man, like we're wired to look at a beautiful woman and then pursue that woman. So laid that on top of it. And this, this, you know, at 20, this culmination of all of these things, I'm just in so much pain. But if you looked at me face level, getting a 4.0 GPA, double major, Monday through Thursday, I'm doing school Thursday at 4 p.m., until Sunday at midnight, just just destroying my body, um, pursuing things and putting things into my body that um, weren't giving me the, the love that I that I needed. And there were so many times like where I literally would drink myself unconscious in one city and wake up thirty miles in a different city and not know how I, I got there. Know how you got there? Yeah. No, and I mean there was times when. Um, uh, and, and Emily knows my story, right? So none of this is, is a surprise as I was joking with you. I just, I thought that was that little Freudian slip there was great. Uh, but no, I mean, there was a, there was a night in Las Vegas. I was out, I was out with these guys. And I mean, the only reason we stopped doing cocaine in a hotel room, it was literally like the hangover movie is we ran out of cocaine. It was like the, have you seen the hangover movie minus the tiger and minus Mike Tyson. Right. Um, and wake up the next day, just I don't even know what happened. I'm just missing moments of my of my life. And uh, yeah, New Year's Eve was January 1st of 2001. It's about 1.30 in the morning and had just finished up another evening of this was just my consistent Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And it's cold in Northern Colorado, really cold. And this house party got shut down. I'm like, well, there's nowhere else to go. So I'm going to go home. And I knew my house was due south of where I was. Um, and I just figured if I just walked due south, just straight down this street that I would pop out on the other street, I ended up walking into a neighborhood that I'd never been in and was approached by a house where the street stopped with a fence that was about three feet high. I'm like, well, if I just keep going straight, I'll get home. So I'm trying to climb the fence. I'm fighting with the fence. I'm kicking the fence and screaming at the fence at 1.30 in the morning. And either somebody called the police or the police heard, but a brown Ford Astro van pulls up behind me. I hear the door open, door close. I'm still fighting the fence. And this guy grabs me by my, my collar and my belt spins me around, slams me on the hood of his car. And it's not a police car. 
but he identified himself as a police officer and he put me in handcuffs and his wife is sitting in this like 90s Ford Astro van with a couple of babies and car seats in the back just like what are you what are you doing he's he's driving around picking up drunk kids and um he called over to on duty police officer and he came and put me into the back of the real police car and at, at that point he had all the power control authority to take me to jail to punish me to do all of these things and he let me and he let me know that right he let me know that he said hey um i've got 24 more of you guys to go pick up tonight he showed me the screen and he said, can you tell me how to get home? Like, are you that drunk that you don't know how to get home? Because then I have to take you to the drunk tank because I don't know where to take you. And I said, oh, yeah, I know how to get home. So he's driving me home and he's giving me that police talk, right? That what are you, what are you doing out there? Don't you know any better? Right? Kind of like that, that the parent to the child, don't you know you shouldn't be drinking? And he was just kind of going and going and going. And I'm swaying back and forth. And he sees that I'm about to throw up in the car. And he's like, whatever you do, don't throw up in the car. And it, you know, I'm, I'm getting the riot act read. And at some point, I don't know if I did something or said something, but he stopped all of this berating per se. And he said, Hey, just curious, what's your story? Why are you almost dead in a field at one in the morning? And his commands and directives started turning into questions and curiosity. And again, I'm, I'm just thinking back to what I barely remember being heavily intoxicated in the back of this car. But the couple things I remember is he said, Hey, I'm going to take you home. And, and he pulls up to the house, gets out of the car. Again, I'm in, I'm in handcuffs. I'm not under arrest at this point. So I've never officially been under arrest. Okay. There's time. He, much. <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet. I still got some years ahead of me. Um, but he get, but he gets me out of the police car and his, his tone changed. He goes, Hey, he said, you know, I came from another police department where when I was picking kids up out of the field, instead of talking to them and driving them home, which I'm about to do with you, I was driving to their parents' house after I took them to the morgue because, you know, he lived in a, in a big city and transferred over to this department. And he said, you know, the next time I see you, I want to see you doing good things. I don't want to be scooping you up in a field and going to your parents' house. Happy New Year's. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, that spoke to me. Uh, I need to be spoken to. I've learned lessons in life when I have to be hit in the face with them. You can't circle around things with me. I'm direct. So give it to me direct. He just gave it this lesson, um, which I received as, as love. He had the control, the power, the authority to put me in prison, like to do his job as a police officer. I was breaking the law. He had to make sure I was safe and not going to die, but he could have done that. I think he just wanted to avoid the paperwork, right? That would have been a more, more paperwork for his evening. Um, but, but he, he really spoke to me and I remembered that. And at that point going home that evening, I looked back and I was like, man, I could have been dead this weekend and this weekend and this party and this road trip and this and that. And I thought about all these times that I shouldn't have woken up the next day and that, you know, somebody or something is looking out for me. And again, I'm, I'm in the college environment where a lot of people are approaching me with different gods, right? And it's so cool. Like we live, we live in this world. You and I travel all over the world, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's multiple higher beings and beliefs and, and powers. And the point of my point in my life at that point in my life is I didn't believe in any, there was, okay. there was no God that loved you. There was, there was no God that was like, it was me. It was all me. And that's all that this life is. And um, people had approached me to talk about God, to talk about Jesus. And people had approached me to talk about other gods. 
And the way that the people approached me was at a time in my life where I hated myself. So I didn't want to hear what they had to say. And all I could see in their approach was how hateful it was because you'll find what you're looking for. <laughs> right. <laughs> so every approach I'm like, Oh, here comes another, you know, and, and it was more Christians. Right. And I had a couple of experience with Christians where they would judge me for coming home, being drunk. There was one guy in the dorms in particular. He said, Hey, um, I smell you coming down the hall. He's having a Bible study, a get together, and he's having Chipotle. He didn't invite me in for some Chipotle burritos. That would have been really nice to cap off the evening. He just wanted to judge me. So I said, I don't want to have anything to do with your God or this person's God or any God. And, um, you know, I made, made a decision to, to give my life to Jesus on January 14th of 2001 um, and, and focus on living a life that honors and serves him because I believe his story and it totally transformed my life. So what, I would say what, that the, what, what was the catalyst then? What was the big switch yeah. from not only not liking yourself, <clears throat> yeah. not, not wanting to speak to other religious people who were trying to give you their message, you totally rejected. And then all of a sudden, bam, you change and you'll give you life to a faith, in your case, yeah. Christianity. So yeah. what, what, was, what, what is it that flicked that switch? So what I, what I realized is, um, you know, if you're, if you're shopping for a red Corvette, all you're going to see is red Corvettes as you're out yeah, yeah. Driving, driving around. So I can't remember the name of that principle or whatever that is. But, um, Reticular so activation angry. system. Yes, the RS, yes. That, that's so, it. Yeah. There you go. I knew you know. <laughs> So, so that going, you know, going on in my mind is I was just so angry and so upset is anybody that was approaching me, I was going to get angry and upset no matter what they said. So yeah. that police officer, what he did, those words, that act of kindness, the story he shared, it lifted scales off of my eyes, if you could call it that. Mm -hmm. And I realized, hey, Brad at the dorms is still Brad at the dorms. He was judgy. He was making fun of me. He was ridiculing me. He's still going to be Brad at the dorms. But this, this guy showed me, hold on, there's people that love you. And, and, I, and I don't know how or why, like, I don't remember who he was. He was just a male Fort Collins police officer. I woke up that next day and I said, you know, not, not everybody hates me. This guy didn't. He would have put me in jail if that's true. And then hold on, this guy's been reaching out to me for coffee every week just to check in. You know, I met him. I filled out a little survey about a Bible study. And he just reached out, didn't judge me. He's like, hey, I'm here if you ever want to talk. I'm here if you ever want to talk. I'd love to know your story. It was just this invitation. So that evening with the police officer made me see that there were people, you know, through this journey of me just hating myself that were there loving me along the way. So he opened my eyes to that. And another big factor in making that decision is I read two books that Lee Strobel wrote, Case for Faith and Case for Christ. Uh, he was a Chicago journalist who actually went out to disprove that the story of Jesus. And he, he was an atheist and he wanted to prove him wrong. And he went out and I think he stopped working for two years and then came to the conclusion based on his research that, that he believed it to be true and then stated it in that book. And for me, I was very much in the mindset of you, you got to show me the evidence. You got to show me the evidence. You got to show me the facts. That's just how I was. And um, that, that sealed the deal for me. But, but I think the bigger, lesson is it because like whatever anybody's faith is i challenge you explore something that's bigger than yourself wherever you are in the world okay whatever that is for you um 
but but if you don't think anybody loves you and you're having a hard time loving yourself, you might just need to look at it from a different angle, step outside of your story. And for me, I needed to get put in the back of a police car and handcuffs to see that. And then I started seeing that more. I would not advocate people getting drunk, high on drugs, almost dead in a field to come to this Don't position, do all that. though. <laughs> no, that's not good. No, but I would say, you know, if you ever, the back of a police car is not comfortable. There are hard yeah. seats. There's no cushion. There's like no AC. There's no music. Um, it, it, it's, it would be a good idea. Go find a friend who's a police officer, have them put you in handcuffs, sit you in the back of one of those, just so you can see where you never want to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame you don't know who that police officer is because he's, he's one of the few. There are few people on this earth who yeah. have that kind of power but deliver that kind of message. And, and I've gone back, so I called... Um, a friend of mine who, who he's been at the police department forever. He might've been there the, the same year that I was at Colorado state while I was in college. And I said, Hey, am I in your system? And it, it wasn't, it wasn't put in the system because I wasn't placed under arrest. It was literally more of just a safety welfare. Hey, this guy's dying in a field, mm-hmm. make sure he's okay. Drive him home. It was never reported or recorded. And um, they, they were able to look back that far and I'm not in the system because I would love to know who that was. Yeah. That would be wonderful. That would be cool. It yeah. would be. It would be. Well, we'll we'll come back to this point in the story, but I want to ask you something now about martial arts because you are a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, yeah. as a martial artist myself, I know that people go into martial arts for completely different reasons. So what was it for you and why Brazilian jiu-jitsu? <laughs> What it was then and what it is now is totally different. And this has been just For part sure. of my, my transformation as a, as a man. So in, in getting bullied, right, I'm making money. And then I'm, um, I remember the first time that a girl turned her head and looked at me. And she looked at me when I was in 10th grade. She looked at me in the lunch line, the cafeteria line. And then she looks at this guy with these really big muscles. She literally looks to her right, sees little skinny Matt looks to this big guy, David, with big muscles, and she squeezes his big biceps, looks back at me, squeezes my little biceps, says, you're never going to get the girls with these. (laughs) So like that was a core memory. I remember who the girl was like, and what she said. I don't know if she remembers it or not, but she did. So I decided to start weight training, right? So again, I'm, I'm puffing up, getting muscles. Girls start looking at me. Um, started doing a little bit of sports in, in high school, but I wasn't really athletic. I just pumped a lot of, uh, pumped a lot of weights. Right. And then getting into college, I'm drinking and I'm drugging and I'm partying and I'm this big 220 pound, just walking muscle of ego attitude. Now I've made a million dollars in business and Emily's. So my wife, her dad is a 40, 50 year martial artist. Okay. And he heard about a night in college that I was out drinking with the college painters and I mouthed off to some guys and they beat me up in downtown Denver. Four guys just beat me up and I, I deserved it for what I said. And he found out about this and he said to me shortly after Emily and I got married, he's a really kind, he's a, he's a Christian trauma counselor. And he's like, Hey Matt, you know, have you ever thought about martial arts? And what he was saying was, Hey, those muscles are never going to protect my daughter. And I heard about that time you got beat up. So I jumped in to study Krav Magats in Israeli yep. martial art. And I studied Mazat. that about, 
four to five years uh, from about 22 to 26. And then we moved down to Loveland, kind of far away from where that gym was. And I'm going to the big gold's gym pumping iron. And I keep driving by this mixed martial arts gym every day. I'm driving to the gym to lift weights. I'm seeing this gym. And this is when ultimate fighting had just really picked up mixed martial arts. <clears throat> and I said, you know what? I'm going to go in there one time. We did a lot of punching and kicking with Krav Maga. I'm going to go to a kickboxing class. So I'm 27 and I walk in right at the end of a kickboxing class, ready to do kickboxing. And all the kickboxers are leaving. And again, I walk in and this little guy named Noah says, Hey buddy, how you, how you doing? Are you here for jujitsu? I said, jujitsu. I go, what is, what is that? And they're rolling around on the mats in pajamas, you know, just, just <laughs> rolling and wrestling and choking and throwing. And, and down. I walked in and, 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 you know, Noah's still a great friend of mine to this day. I was just at his, his baby shower a couple of weekends ago. And he's like, he goes, Hey buddy. And he squeezes my arm. He goes, you here for jujitsu? And I said, yeah, I'm here for jujitsu. What, what do I do? And Noah says, you just go grab one of those guys, throw them on the ground get on top of them, see what they're doing over there. They're wrestling around. Just go grab them, get on top of them and then, you know, choke them and just tap out. If, if they tap out, you stop what you're doing. If you want them to stop, tap out. Well, I'm not going to tap out. You want me to go with that big guy? Noah says, no, no, no. Don't go with the big guys over there. Um, go with Timmy and Timmy's half my age. He's 14. He's a teenager, 130 pounds. So he's, you know, hundred pounds less than me, little kid. And I said, you want me to go with Timmy? No, I was like, yeah, yeah, go, just go with Timmy. He's like, take it, take it easy on Timmy. Then they knew what was about to happen yeah. to me because we have guys like this come into our gym. Now we, I, you just don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, are there any rules? And I was like, don't worry. He's like, just remember to tap if you need to tap. Okay. I'm not going to tap. And I'm thinking to myself, it's like, Timmy's about to get it. Tim, Timmy's going to get it. Right. And I go out there, we slap hands, bump knuckles. That's how you start a jujitsu match. And then you start rolling is what it's called. And I just come after this kid. I grab him by his jacket and I'm just going to pin him to the ground. And he kicks me up over his head, like flips me up, I go upside down, land on my back. And then he's right here on top of me. He like rolls over. He's right there. Huh? And it all happened so fast. And I'm like, Timmy's like hundred pounds. I can bench press 300. So I just push him off of me. And he spins around my arm like a little monkey and, and grabs my arm and falls off and like stretches my arm out. He has something called an arm bar. And I'm look, I'm looking at him and I'm trying to curl, like do a bicep curl with this kid. And he's just dri driving his hips. And he said, you need to tap. And Noah said, you need to tap. They're like, he's going to break your arm. So I tapped out. Um, that was very humbling. That was my introduction to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Timmy continued to do this to me between six and 10 more times within about five minutes and totally humbled me, totally showed me that everything I thought that I had, I, I didn't have, and it was totally used against me. So after that experience, like I went in wanting to prove how tough I was and go punch and kick some people. I go to a jujitsu class and I was totally humbled. And how the reason I came back, Jeff, back then I said, if he can do this to me, I want to be able to do this to somebody else mm. to prove how tough I am. That's why I got into jujitsu. Okay. Now it's very different, of course. Please yes. tell me it's very different. It's very different that because that's not what jujitsu no, is about. No, absolutely. That is so not what it's about. And I, and I share that just because that was where I was. I had so much to prove, right? And maybe yeah. 
improving how tough I am with my money and all of this, right? Well, I've got this faith that I'm not really paying attention to, but it's just there. It's all about me, what I've built, what I can do. And um, yeah, so I just came back. Jiu-Jitsu is beautiful because what, what it's about for me today is it totally changed my life, saved my life. As I've continued to build and develop more tools and skills, I couldn't wait to use it on somebody after day one. Mm-hmm. Then I had a chance to use it outside of the gym and I saw how powerful it is. And I'm like, I don't ever want to see that happen again Yeah, because it really works. And now um, as a man, I am here to protect and provide for my family. My wife trains, my kids train. We were physically attacked in Spain, my daughter and I. We were just over there a couple of months ago. And uh, jujitsu came in very handy. And it's one of those things where I'm fully prepared to use it if I ever need to. But there's rarely any times that you have to. Uh, but I will. And I don't ever, ever want to use it. I just want to drink coffee and love on people and share stories and help people get better in the world. There's a certain point in life, though, when you may get physically attacked and you, you have to defend yourself. Um, yeah. And as a kid, when I didn't know how like when i was getting beaten and bullied hiding behind a play structure getting rocks thrown at me and i'm just scared like to be scared i see these little kids come in here that are scared because they're going through the same things and i'm like give me six months with your kid two three days a week they're not going to be scared anymore Mm -hmm. yeah i love that so we found out quite a lot about Matt the person, or should I say Matt the people, because (laughs) you had quite a bit of transition around you. So let's talk about your business now. Yeah, yeah. You, um, excuse me, I have a dry throat here. You were in business, it's a job you hated, you're a loan officer, you're not happy, you hated it. To make matters worse, they rejected you, they laid you off. This is, you're, you're not even, are you you're not happy? We're not happy with you. So you hit rock bottom. You think, okay, I've got $100 to my name. What can I do with it? So you set up in business and this business goes to revenues of $35 million. So let's rewind then. This company's laid you off. You've got $100. What's this part of the story, Matt? So I'm just just married this was 2000 so i graduated colorado state in 2003 um, i had spent a semester in spain the year prior so i and i fell in love with spain so i get back from spain and i say i want to find a way to get back to spain but i love business i love this business thing and then i meet emily in the basement of a bar on salsa dancing night fall in love with emily and we get married and we settle down here. And I remember we were going through pre-marriage classes and counseling and um, the person running that said, Matt, you know, what was your dream? What do you want to do? And I said, I want to run a business. I, I've loved business. And that's the vision I have for life. But I've got all this debt, right? Because I made all this money in college. I had no financial blueprint. I, did, I, I was good at making it, never really good at keeping it around or growing it. Learned that later in life. So we bought a house. I bought a condo in 2003 and the loan officer that I was getting the loan from was driving around. Like he checked all the boxes, right? Driving around in a nice car, making money, suit and tie. He's like, Matt, you'd be really good at this. You, you know, you did that dirty painting thing, right? And I thought painting was this 
not sexy, not glamorous trade. And I was really concerned about optics. So, you know, this guy kind of starts hanging out with me a little bit. You should get into mortgage. So I became mortgage Matt. And I, and I tell you, um, mowing lawns at 10, shoveling snow, peddling candy in the school locker. And then even the hourly jobs I worked at in middle school, high school, I worked hard. I always made it up to leadership positions. I always loved exchanging my time for money. However, I did it, whether I was an employee, a little cash business kid, but this was the only job where I just, I just really hated it. It's the only job I ever call a job. Um, I end up working at this corporate bank because I'm fluent in Spanish and they had me in a part of town where there was a lot of Spanish speaking clientele, very conservative bank. And they're like, Hey, suit and tie in the office, nine o'clock, making calls, do what you're told, sit down, shut up. Hey, I've got a creative marketing idea. Could you do this? No, we don't care about your creativity. Do what the bank says, right? So back to childhood. This is just the school again, right? Um, and it was a very, I don't want to say bullying environment, but there's definitely this hierarchy of structure and power and they let you know exactly where you fit. If you don't like it, get out of here, kind of a thing. So I'm just hating life, coming home, talking to Emily, plotting my escape. She knew I wasn't happy. Uh, the painters that I was working with in college said, you're going to last about a year at that bank. You're not mortgage, Matt. We get your little postcards in the mail. Stop with that tie. You look silly. This is what they said. They're like, you're going to call us one day. I said, all right, well, if I ever get, if I ever get back into painting, I'll let you know. So March, 2005, they bring in a new bank president for the mortgage division. And he came in and it's just another day. It's a Tuesday morning. I'm coming in to make my hundred calls, whatever it is. And he calls me into the office. And I knew there was a new bank president coming. So I'm like, oh, great. Chad wants to meet me. So I walk into the office. He's sitting in this big banker's desk, big wooden desk. And he's got the nice suit. And he kind of leans back in the chair. And I stick my hand out. Hey, Chad, I'm Matt. He does this. He wow, folds his arms against you. Back, folds his arms. Yeah, he's sitting. I'm standing. But he's 100 times taller than me, right? He's letting me know where I stand. Um, and he says, put all your shit in a box. You're fired. Known, hi, nice to meet you. How's your family? Tell me your story. He said that to me. Go get it all. Put it in a box. Get out. What? So hold on. Tell, say, say that again. He, I didn't stutter. I just told you what to do. Go get it all. Put your beep in a box and get out. And then he says this. This stuck with me. Like This fueled me for a decade. He said, he cinches up the tie. Maybe you should go back to do that painting thing. Get out. So grab all my stuff, put it in a box. I gave him the the double one finger salute, kicked the bank door open, and I'm standing in the parking lot with all of my professional belongings in a box. I even took the little name plaque that they engraved my name in that held my business cards. It was mine, had my name on it, so I took it. It's still in my office today. I just I look at that every day. And I'm like, I got a 12 minute drive home to see Emily, who knows I'm gonna be home early. It's right about lunchtime now, and I got to figure out an answer. So I'm driving home, and I called one of the painters I used to work with. I didn't tell Emily first. I called one of my painters, and I said, hey. He goes, hey, what are you doing? You on lunch break? I go, yeah, I got a permanent lunch. Oh, I knew that bank would fire you. What are you going to do? I'm like, well, give me 30 days. We're going we're gonna to paint the town. We're going to have a whole bunch of houses to paint. He said, all right. I knew, that. I knew you weren't mortgage mad. I told you. <laughs> I get home. It's the typical, honey, I'm home. Emily kind of turns around. Are you home for lunch? You usually don't come home for lunch. I said, yep, permanent lunch. We get to have a long lunch today. I got, I got fired. 
And uh, just remember, she said, she said, what are you going to do about it? Right? How are we going to figure this out? And I've got your back. So again, like part of my story, these themes, it's this rejection, you're not good enough. And then I got to figure it out. And there's always somebody there to support me and encourage me. And she's been so, so big a part of that, Jeff. And I said, hey, let's eat lunch. And we actually enjoyed lunch for a little bit. And then I said, hey, the sun, I'll be home when the sun's down. And went out, started knocking on doors with these crooked cut business cards from Kinko's Copies. And I can't remember if I had the LLC yet, all the legalities. I literally needed to make $2,800 in 28 days. And I knocked on doors and that $100 went down to 70 because I had to buy business cards. And then that 70 went down to 40 because I had to buy some contracts to go out and do proposals. But from that Tuesday to the end of the weekend on Sunday, I did between 10 and 12 proposals. I closed $15,000 worth of contracts and I took 50% deposits. So now I had $7,540 in the bank. And I said, I think we can do this. And then I just kept going back and doing that over and over and over and over again. Okay. So this paint business, we should explain to our listeners, what is this paint business exactly? What is it we're talking about? We perform residential repainting of homes in Northern Colorado. So we live in you know homes and suburbs and neighborhoods uh, where you, you can walk around literally up to people's doors, knock on the door and offer them a service, right? Cutting their grass, shoveling their snow. So we're repainting homes between seven and 10 years after they were constructed because those new construction paint jobs aren't the best quality. So I targeted a neighborhood, actually two neighborhoods that all had those characteristics and just walked around and knocked on doors. Cool. So how did you get it to $35 million? Yeah. So the, so, so the 35 million is, is to date that's revenue that we've done to date. So where that went is the March till October, 2005. That's when our season shuts down. We did a half million top line. Second year, we did 800,000. Third year, we crossed that million. We did 1.2. Uh, two years later, or five years in, we're 2 million plus. So you're multi-million. And then just moving forward, we grew and expanded all kinds of lessons and failures. But um, over the years, we've been between a two and a $3 million company in Northern Colorado. We've now expanded into roofing. So to date, yeah, we've done maybe closer to 40 now. Um, but yeah, it went, it went from $100 to a million in three years and then multi-million in, in two more. Excellent. Now, yeah. you just gave a throwaway comment. I learned some stuff. So we had some successes. We had some failures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> we have to come back to that, Matt. So what were the things you learned that were valuable? I mean, yeah. we could argue failure is also valuable. So what were the successes and what were the failures? What yeah. were the lessons from yeah. both? I love it. They're all, they're all valuable, right? And obviously yeah, successes right. when you, yeah. when you get an A on the test or you, or you win, we were talking to the kids in jujitsu about this yesterday. I go, feels good to win, right? Like feels good to win the belt. Who wants to own that? Yes. Well, why did you win? Well, here's why. How's it feel to lose? Not good. Do you want to talk about it? No, because it feels bad. But, but for me, everything's a success. I'm a very glasses half full guy, but the things I did that I would tell a new business owner, if you're running out of money or you have none and you're starting something is find that one thing that makes you money. And I was really clear on that. Business is simple. It's four things. It's attracting, 
converting, delivering, and then getting paid. And I stole that from Mike McCallowicz. He's a business author. He calls it the ACDC, attract, convert, deliver, collect. All business works that way. So I knew if I knocked on doors for an hour that I would get between one and two estimates. I knew that every two to three estimates I would convert into a contract where somebody would hire me to have them come paint for them. So I was really good because I was good at math and numbers and the gift of gab and knocking on doors, just lean into that. So if you're starting a business, whatever the business is, um, don't worry about what you're not good at. You're going to have to do that. It stinks. I hate being in the weeds of operations, but I was very intentional about making sure that at the right time every day, I was doing those things I was great at to drive business and money into the bank. Um, One thing I was not good at, and I've never been good at, I actually hate, is I hate painting. I'm not a good painter. I learned that in college painting. Like You hired other people and trained them. I was never good at it. And a lot of painters and I would get into heated, you know, conversations, arguments, fights, even sometimes at the paint store. Well, you're not a real painter. You don't know, you don't know how to paint. I said, I'm a business guy. So for a, you know, if you're good at baking cakes, right, this is Michael Gerber's e-myth and you go to open a bakery, you should get really good at being a business person. And I identified from the very first day of a business owner, an entrepreneur that happens to do it with painting not a painter that's trying to become a business owner. And that was really what drove a lot of the success. It's the the focus and the attention. And then, yeah, I, I'm never going to be good at accounting. So I've never done it. I hire people that I trust, put them in charge of it. You got to check them, right? Yeah, yeah. So they don't take your money because we had that happen. We had a guy take a little bit of money one year. has a lot of bit of money one year. <laughs> so I wasn't watching, right? Um, yeah. So I th- it's a very important point that you've made. So I call this entrepreneurial seizure. So if you had been good at painting, you would have got involved with the painting. But because you're not good at it and don't like it, then you can't do it. So you must be then forced into the business side of it. So you're working on your business, not in your business. And I I work in the automotive industry, as you know, and there are so many people who are technicians, mechanics, who think, oh, you're paying me $10, you're charging $100, I'm going to set up my own business as a technician. And what do they know? They're probably a very, very good technician, but that's not what business is about. So working on your business, as opposed to working in your business, I would say, that is one of the blueprints for all successful business people. It's spend more time working on your business and not in it. Yeah, not being good at painting for me was one of the one of the best things ever because I there was no ability for me to get pulled into the weeds. Like like today, uh, I own a jujitsu academy. It's one of our other companies that we have, and I'm really good at technically teaching jujitsu. So if somebody doesn't show up to teach class, guess who's got to get pulled in to teach? <laughs> So there's, you know, there, there's, and that's the deliverable, right? We're delivering this experience of great instruction and leadership training. So it's, it's always a balance. I've seen it both ways and um, it's very easy to get pulled into the weeds and stuck there. So when you get stuck there, that it can be a really big detriment. A lot of business owners I speak to and help is they're just, they're stuck in the operations of the business and the deliverable because they love it because they don't have anybody else to do it. 
or maybe they do, but they just, they, they, it's like they're losing a piece of themselves. It's their identity, especially in the trades, you know, back in the day, it was these third, fourth generation painters. There, there's no way I'd hire anybody. They're so proud of their work and they could said, well, then you're never going to be able to grow a business. That's absolutely true. What's different about you and your situation, Mac, with the, the jujitsu is that you already know you already have a paint company and you already know what makes a business successful. So when you had your jujitsu, you went into it with your eyes open, knowing yeah. that at some point you might have to get involved in it, but that's not your major role. The major role was making the academy, the dojo successful. And that's the difference. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. So there's some stories I can tell you about karate and dojos and what was successful, what wasn't, but that that's for another, another, another day. Okay, so one day you and I speak and I say, okay, Matt, let's get you on the show. There's a story to be had here and we booked the show for about a month's time. I then receive an email to say, hey, Jeff, thanks very much. Uh, by the way, can you give me your address? I'd like to send you something. And that's not uncommon. And what most people, what most guests do is send me a book because, of course, they want me to understand the book and their work before they come on the show. So I say, yes, OK. So I send my address. And, he, and then Emily contacts me a little while later. Hey, Jeff, have you got your box? And uh, sorry, Emily, no, I haven't. And then you message me to say, ah, We've had a mess up here. It should have been sent out. It wasn't sent out. I'm really sorry. It's going out now. So then Emily messages me. Hey, Jeff, it's all sorted. I've double checked. It's on its way. And then a couple of weeks later, hey, Jeff, Emily contacts me again. She said, have you received your box? And I said, no, not yet. But at that point, I then went to do some work in Germany with Porsche. So I was, I was away for a while. And then Emily messaged me again. So she's obviously worried because something happened the first time. Hey, Jeff, have you got your box? And I said, Emily, I'm in Germany. So I can tell you something has arrived. My wife has told me something has arrived. She hasn't opened it. She's, because my wife said, you've got this parcel in it from USA. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm kind of expecting something from the USA. It'll Does it say it's from... Uh, Matt or Emily show and she said no but it is USA I said I think it's a book she said oh no it's bigger than a book unless it's a very big book <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I said it's it's okay so um, I, I'll deal with it when I get home and I I, I I had no expectations so I get home from Germany I'm tired and I see this box there she said oh, hey, here's your box from USA I look at it in the morning. I'm just too tired. So I'd been working and then flown home. So next morning, Matt, I get up, have breakfast with my wife and things. And she said, have you opened that box? And I said, no. I said, I'll go, I'll go open the box. So I get this box and it's probably, I don't know, 12 inches square, something like this. And perhaps six or eight inches high. And I think it can't be a book. Anyway. So I opened this box <clears throat> and inside there's a, a coffee thing. I'll call it a thing because I, don't, I didn't know what it was. 
And underneath it was a, a, a beautiful sachet of coffee called Café Sevilla. So, okay. And then underneath was the book. So, Painted Babies, the book. Ah, it is from Matt. So, um, but what, what's this thing he sent me? So I put it to the side, I put it down, and I thought, I'm still too tired, I'll, I'll have a look at it later. And because we got my, my daughter and the husband coming over later in the day, so I thought, I'll, I'll check it out later before they come, I'm, I'm just too tired now. So I, I'm, I flick through the book, which we'll talk about now, and then a couple of hours go by, I open this coffee thing, and the bottom unscrews, it's got filters in it, it's got a handle, it's got a lid, it's beautiful, shiny chrome. And I thought, what the hell do you do with this? I had no idea. <laughs> so it does look beautiful, I need to find out. And there's no instructions. And I thought, Matt, what are you doing to me here? But so then I started reading the box because I'm a man, right? So you try and figure it out first. And if you can't, then you look at the instructions. Then you um, read the directions. Yeah. Right? yeah, same way, same thing. Yeah, typical men. Yeah. Our wives are like typical yeah. guys. So I unscrewed the bottom of this chrome part and inside there's another part and there's a filter. And I'm trying, as an engineering background, I'm trying to work out what goes, what goes on here. And I couldn't figure it out. So then I look on the side of the box and there's a link to a web page. I go onto the web page and there's four videos from you, Matt. So I find out how to use this uh, coffee machine. So then I thought, I'll, I'll wait until my daughter comes and my son-in-law, who came later. So he came and I said, hey, James, look at this. And I thought, I'm going to have some fun with him here. So I gave it to him. He said, great, what is it? And I said, that's a fantastic question. <laughs> How do you think this works? So he was taking it apart and didn't know. And I said, I've actually found out how it works. How about we use it? You come with me on a journey, first time of making this coffee. And he said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. So... I'm going to end my story there. So I had this fantastic cup of coffee with my son. It was beautiful. We enjoyed the experience of making it. And so I have my coffee pots. I know what's coming here is to do with your foundation. So you've made some money. You love Spain. So let's get into this story. The foundation is the Emily and Matt Shope Spain Study Abroad Scholarship. So you can tell us about that. But people listening now are thinking, what the hell is this coffee machine and what's it about? And Café Sevilla. So with all of that in hand, Matt, I've waffled on a little. <laughs> but it, it's relevant and set you up nicely, so I'm going to hand it back to you. What is Café Sevilla all about? And Spain. Yeah, thank you. And being yeah, a paella it, chef and all, all that that therein is. Spain is just a huge part of my life. I mentioned briefly, you know, the previous story, my junior year of college, a Spanish professor, she would harass me every day after her Spanish culture class. You need to go to my country. You need to go to my country. You need to go to my country. There's art, there's history, there's, you know, all, all of, all of those things. Like, ah, I'm not interested in that. She's like, there's women and parties. 
said, sign me up. Oh, right? they, this is they, while I'm still pursuing go, women yeah. and parties. And, and I go over on a whim. I literally left everything that I knew here, the comfort of my, of my home and my environment and, and the business that I'm doing and go live with a family, fly you know, six, 7,000 miles away, land on the other side of the world. And things are different and things are uncomfortable. I'm totally out of my comfort zone, but I'm also in this place where whatever country I would have gone to, I think I would have fell in love with it. It was just a time in my life where um, I needed to experience different culture, part of the world. And I just, I fell in love with everything, the culture, the cuisine, the coffee. And that's when I really started drinking coffee was in Spain. So when I came back from Spain, I was trying to find every reason to get back there some way, shape or form. I was looking at possibly doing like a, some mission work, missions, trips, maybe go back and get a master's degree. And then I ultimately meet Emily, fall in love. And here we are back in the story. So I have this passion for this other country. Uh, Emily and I get married in 04. We go back in 05. First time that I went back, first time I took her there. And she's like, I see why you love Spain so much. So I take my kiddos there every year. I alternate taking one of my kids for father, son, father, daughter trip. And every time we go there, we drink the coffee. And then I'd start bringing coffee home to drink at home. And then a friend would come over. Hey, that's good coffee. Can I have some? Sure. Come over for coffee. And then in the business, I'd bring a little extra home. Hey, we can give this out as a gift for clients. And then it turned into, I'd bring a whole suitcase home. Then it turned into a friend was shipping me big boxes of it. Then COVID happened. And that totally shut down the distribution. So I've just always loved sharing Spanish culture, coffee, and stories with people here in America. And um, during COVID, I said, you know, we're buying these boilers on Amazon. Now we're giving away the boilers. We're shipping this brand of coffee and the beans aren't from Spain. It's just a Spanish company that makes them and roasts them. The beans are from Kenya. So during COVID, we actually found a family farm in Kenya that grows the coffee right at the base of Mount Kenya. They pick it, put it in a bag. They send it straight here. It's direct trade, fair trade. We roast it here in town and we bag it in these Cafe Sevilla bags. So what you received was, you know, the culmination of 20 years of just being in love with this country. And then what happened one day is I'm making coffee for somebody at the office and I hand it over and he goes, well, how much, how much is this? I said, it's free. It's always free. Just come out and let's have coffee. It's just what we do. So I want to leave a tip or something. I go, this isn't a coffee shop. We're not, we're not a coffee shop here. And he put five dollars in a big beer cup that i used to drink beer out of in spain when i lived there it's a nice decorative cup it was sitting in our uh, in our shelf in our office he's like find something good to do with this and then he left and in 2007 so as this is all happening we started a scholarship at colorado state university to send students over to spain that scholarship turned into uh, contributing to a university endowment so it's a permanent scholarship i haven't yet this is the next step is I'll be starting a foundation. So we donate the money to the university and they pool that money in a, in a big fund and it's a permanent deal. So when somebody contributes to it, it kicks off interest like a mutual fund. And that's what scholarships the students to go to Spain. So yeah, when that guy dropped that $5 in the cup, I said, hold on, like Cafe Sevilla, we're, we're already calling it that for fun. Let's, let's brand these boilers, these bags, and it exists for two reasons. It's to show love to others by sharing coffee with them. And that's what I got to do with you. I got to share a piece of my story. You sent me a really nice emotional video. And that really touched me when I received it because I was having a real bad day that day. And I was wondering if 
why I'm doing all this every day is actually worth it and matters. You ever had one of those days? Oh yeah. Like you're home from a long trip and I'm like, man, you just had a long trip. And I wonder if you were having a, a bad day and wondering if what you're doing matters. And I, and I know I am. And then I get this video and I wasn't even going to watch it. And I'm almost in tears watching you almost be in tears <laughs> sharing this story. And, and then I'm like, Hey team, this is why we do what we do every day. Right. Um, and the secondary point of Cafe Sevilla is to raise money for this scholarship. So in our building here, when you walk into the lobby, it's a coffee bar. We're, we're not a commercial food and beverage establishment. It's not like Starbucks. You have to be invited here. It's private. Um, but when you walk in, we're, we're almost at the point where we have a full-time barista that says, hey, welcome to Cafe Sevilla. What can I make you? Tea, coffee, hot chocolate. And we just we just love on people. We have two to 250 people that come in and out of our building every week between the six companies that, that my holding company has, and it's all in this one building. And it's a lot of parents of kids that are training and they, they just sit in the lobby, get on the Wi-Fi, have a coffee, and, and then sometimes they leave a tip. And uh, you know, you never know what that $100 that could turn into five every year, forever, that's, that's the cost of a cup of coffee. And I've heard stories from the students that we've sent to Spain that literally met their spouse over a cup of coffee over there that totally changed the direction of their life, that found their calling, that found their faith, that found this permanent passion because they won this scholarship, because somebody dropped $5 or $100. And you think, you know, what does this little thing that I'm doing matter in the universe? That's why it matters. And it's just so cool to hear these stories and see them connect in this building. Isn't it strange how this has happened between us? Because I'd had a tough time in Germany. <clears throat> and, and the journey home was not great either. So on that, uh, it was, uh, and I'd been working over the weekend on a bank holiday weekend And it was my daughter's birthday, which I never work away from home on family's birthdays. Everything conspired against me. And I thought, why? Why am I doing this? Why? And, yeah. uh, and it perpetuates. Uh, and the whole thing just pulls you down. And the, the box is here. Yeah, I don't want to open the box. So next day, when I open the box, I'm still not feeling great. But after I'd had some fun with James, my lad, uh, it was really cool. We went and shared. And that's why I made the video for you to express my gratitude. Now, I didn't know that my video um, had hit you at that time. And I didn't know it affected you in that way either. I just made... I just switched the camera on. I didn't play anything. I just sent you this video to say thank you. But isn't it nice that you know you've affected me at a time that mattered? And now I know this video had some effect on your life when it yeah. mattered. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Well, and I think for me, my big transition, right, in business and life and kind of summing up all of my stories is I'm just this angry kid who doesn't feel loved and has everything to prove and made his mark in business, right? But at the end of the day, business is just about humans serving humans. And to the degree we do that with kindness and love and excellence, and we can give people love, certainty, value, compassion. You can have fun doing it with people you love. 
oh, and you get to support and provide for your family doing that. That's I made a really big shift in into turning anger into appreciation, right? Everything happened to me. And it's like, no, this happened for me. And and I have to remind myself of that because right now I've definitely made some big, bold statements and, and I'm doing some big things and setting some big goals. And when you do that, guess what happens? There's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of these days. And um, yeah, just that that video from you helped me, reminds me of why we do what we do. And, and I think also some team members that may be becoming unclear or uncertain or losing that faith and that, and that hope, you know, we're in a world right now where, you know, state the state, the obvious that's out there, there, there's a lot of ways to get divided and go to our corners and pick our sides. And it's like, now we got to come together as people and find common ground and love each other. Um, absolutely. That's what we do here every day. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I did that video, um, nothing else other than to say thank you and show gratitude and appreciation. Yeah. Emily then sent me a message. Emily and I have never met. We've only texted. So Emily sent me this message. Hey, Jeff, we've got the video. Thank you very much. I loved it. And he brought a tear to my eye. And I thought, what? Put a tear to your eye? Okay. So, and then <clears throat> I interviewed a guy called Dave Albin. Who, yeah. who was on a show earlier in this series, and I did not know that you know Dave Albin. So he said, hey, Jeff, how are you doing? This is before we started. But, and I said, I'm good. And he said, oh, man, I've just seen your video. And I said, which video, Dave? And he said, the one you sent to say thank you to Matt Shope. And I said, all right. Um, how did you see that video? Because it's a private video. It's <laughs> you can't just go on. And and he said, "Hey, Matt sent it to me." And I said, "Oh, yeah. wow!" And even Dave said, "I I had tears in my eyes." And <laughs> you know, so that's the power of thank you. So what I will say at this point in the show, at the end of the show, I always say, "If you want to help us, please share." So I'll say yeah. now the effect you can have on someone's life. When you listen to a show like this, you say something in here, we, we affect people and we never know. So I sent yeah. that video to you just to say thank you. And it hit you at the right time and made a difference. Yeah. And that yeah. could be the thing on this podcast. So please share it with someone. Okay, so Cafe Sevilla. So if someone wants to buy or, or do something with Cafe Sevilla, how do we do that, Matt? Yeah, so the best way to find the website is on my website, so mattshop.com. There's a tab at the top for Cafe Sevilla that will take you there. Um, right now, we ship coffee all over the United States. I think we can ship. It's pretty easy to set it up to go overseas, but if you're in the United States, uh, you can buy the boilers, the bags of beans, and we'll ship it directly to you. Some people just actually come on, and they can link straight to the university page and donate directly to the scholarship through that website. And um, I've had I've had people do that. I'll get a letter in the mail that says somebody who I've never met before in a, a place that I don't know donated. And I don't know where they came from. They don't tell you too much about the donor, just that you're, you know, receiving donations and just a really, really cool thing. Yeah, wonderful. Buy the boiler. 
This is a fascinating yeah. coffee machine. Oh, it looks sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a apart from great coffee, it's a great experience making the coffee. I had yeah. no idea how this thing worked. So go on there, get the boiler. Okay, 2011, you wrote a book. Become an award-winning company. So I have three questions. You can package this answer however you wish. So why did you write the book? Who is it for? And what will they get from it? When I wrote it in 2011, it was for the wrong reason. It was to, to have some clout. It was like a big business card and a, hey, look at yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. And it was for business owners. It was written with really great intentions of helping business owners and sharing a system of how to win business awards and get tons of free marketing and PR and exposure. It was something we did in business. And they received a lot of value. I thought if I wrote it, it would just sell. Imagine that, right? Like if you write it, they will buy. But the, the, the big mistake, right? Now that like I didn't identify as an author, it was a bucket list thing. Hey, like when we started the scholarship, it was, hey, it would be cool to start a scholarship, not knowing how that journey would progress. Hey, I want to write a book. Ah, cool, let's write a book. Print on demand, self-publish. I wrote it in like six months, tons of typos. Um, and it wasn't until I met uh, Mike McCallowicz. He's a good friend of mine. He's become a great mentor, a very successful author. He's like, you got to identify as an author. You need to understand who your audience is and what their need is. So when I wrote it back then, I just, um, I didn't know what I didn't know. It was like jujitsu when Timmy was choking me and mm -hmm. stretching my arms out. I didn't know what I didn't know. And now I know what I know. So when Painted Baby came out in 2023, um, that that is written for business leaders that are struggling connecting with people because they're not being real with their story. They're being too polished. They're being too perfect. And I shared a really funny story of when a paint sprayer exploded on a job site, we painted a customer's baby. It's a really bad day at the office, but it opened the door for me to have this journey to learn about being more brave and vulnerable with my story when I talk to people, which connects us as humans deeper. And then you end up selling more and doing more in business because people have a deeper trust and connection to you. Um, so I kind of dovetailed into my second book, but the authorship journey has been just such a fun one. You put your heart out for the world to see. And um, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. So your book is called Painted Baby. You just alluded to the painting is what you do. So the baby I'm assuming then is your customer's house. That's their baby. Is that where the yeah. title comes from? So we were on a job site in 2011 and we're getting ready to spray a door. My painter, Raul, is getting ready to spray a door with black semi-gloss paint. And the homeowner is standing behind him with her nine-month-old baby daughter admiring the paint job. And Raul had sprayed a thousand doors before. And he goes to pull the trigger and the paint gun explodes all over the door, all over him, all over the mom, all over the baby. Oh, So we actually painted a baby and um, baby was okay. So no babies were harmed in the making of the book, <laughs> the telling of the story. <laughs> Disclaimer, don't sue me. And, and we, we had a mess to clean up that day and something was on the line. Like our integrity, our honesty, our, our what will we do when stuff goes bad was tested and we did the right thing. But I said, we're not going to talk about this. This is not a five-star A+. That's what people want to see. So three years later, 
I'm sitting in a sales engagement with the biggest contract ever that I'm ever going to land. So think about your normal business engagement, multiply that by 20. Like this was a game changer. And I'm trying to paint the picture of perfection and sell with all of the shiny marketing brochure language and typical sales jargon. And my customer's like, this is BS. He throws my marketing brochure. He says, throws it across the table. Tell me about a time you screwed up and what you did about it. I'd never been asked that before. So he challenged me to step into this discomfort of, of sharing a mistake. Like we don't do that. The world tells us, social media tells us we have to be these perfect, perfectly postured people. And I told him, Hey, you want, you want it? You got it. We painted a baby. You want to hear about it? Yeah. And he leans in he's engaged and he wants to hear the story. So as I'm telling him this, not, I can't believe I'm doing this the whole time I'm doing this, but he's engaged and he's responsive. And I just went with it. I said, you know what? I, I let the cat out of the bag. Let's skin the cat. Like, let's do everything here with the cat right here, right now. And he said, boom, shakes my hand. You're the kind of guy I want to do business with. Give me that contract. Here's, here's, whoa, I just, I just shared a mistake and sold business. So from 2011 to, you know, this book coming out, it was exploring the actual process of what I did, how you connect through story, how we actually connect as people and how we paint a picture of perfection. And it takes, you know, true leadership for somebody to be brave and go first and let their guard down. And then the other person receives that and goes, oh, they're human too. And then you just connect at this deeper level, um, connections of base need and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, we want to feel connected to people. And as much as we think we are in the world because we're connected on on these things, we are the most disconnected people in the world right now. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So that's Painted Baby. And that book <clears throat> took me seven years to get out because I chickened out. Like I knew that was my calling back in 2015, 16 that I'm, I'm supposed to be doing more than running a painting company or doing some real estate. Like we have other companies and those are, those are fun, but, but I'm, I'm meant to share this message with people to give them hope, to give them inspiration, to know that when, you know, they're having a bad day, they're at the end of their rope is that I've been there too. And I've got to go first and share those moments and, and what I learned in them uh, to tell people to keep going. Cause we have, we have to keep going because okay. I've seen people stop and decide not to keep going. Okay. We've got the backstory on Painted Baby, where this comes from. So there's a couple of things here. You knew it was your calling to do it. You chickened out. So <laughs> paint me a picture then of Painted Baby. Um, what's the book about and why should we read it? What are we going to get yeah. from it? Yeah. So you're going to learn how to tell a great story. You're going to learn the process of telling a story, all of the components of a story and why we should tell a story. You're going to be called out and challenged to consider the stories that you're telling right now in your sales and your marketing and your messaging. But if you change the word in the subtitle, which is connect with clients through brave and vulnerable storytelling, if you replace clients with your spouse, your friends, your community, this is an overarching message, right? You're going to read about it in the business space, but it's how to connect with people at a deeper level and how actually sharing what you think is your biggest dirty little secret skeleton in the closet actually is your most powerful tool to connect with another person. Um, we, we don't, we just don't need to hear more polished 10 level 10 Instagram posts. Like we know they're not real. And um, there's this wave coming that I'm seeing in business that that people that are successful, they stand the test of time 
they're they're being real they're being honest and vulnerable with people and they're relentlessly contributing to them which is a which is another message um but i would say if you want to laugh if you want to cry if you want to hear dave albin's story and other entrepreneurs stories of something was on the line they screwed up and they actually owned it and turned that into success that's what the book's all about okay cool and how do we get hold of the book so just mattshop.com. You can click there. It'll direct you to, to Amazon. That's going to be the biggest platform right now is, is going to Amazon. Okay, cool. So how you've chickened out. So <laughs> how do you get inspired to get back on? Well, let me ask you a slightly different question. You've written two books. Is there going to be a third? There must be. There's going to be a third, fourth, and a fifth. I'm okay. working, working nice. on the third right now. Okay. And you are... Okay. And this is, this is fitting. So I've posted a little on social media. Uh, this is going to be the first podcast that I'm telling the world what the next book is. Uh, and it's called JJ learns jujitsu. Okay. The journey, a journey of a young boy who's being bullied, who learns about gentle strength, kindness, empowerment, and hope. Okay. And it's an illustrated kid's book. Yeah. And it's totally out of my wheelhouse. It's a thousand words, and they are the hardest thousand words to write. I, I read a thousand word blog every morning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For business, this one's difficult. Um, but that's what I'm working on right now. And then my next business book uh, is relating into the concept of pouring into people. Pouring into people. Now I've seen that line. I think on Cafe Sevilla somewhere. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what's this book going to be about then? That when you focus on the profit, the people will run. And when you pour into people, the profit will come. It's, it's the idea is if you, if you look at, and this is, again, this is my shift in business as a leader, as a man, as a business owner, is I'm really good at business, really good at the numbers. But if you don't pay attention to your people, understand the needs of your people, and at the end of the day, like you really have to, if you're, if you're in business and you don't like or love people, get out of business. You're in the wrong, you're in the wrong thing. Business is about people and bringing them together and supporting them and uplifting them and understanding at little small detail levels, but even big picture levels, how you can contribute to them because your cup is so filled with joy and gratitude and all of these things that you're overflowing with it and you're pouring that into other people. So, so it sounds all very touchy-feely. That's great. But what is the process of identifying, for example, somebody that's on your team in your business and you have antennas out, you're listening to a story they're telling about an experience and you're like, ooh, there's a need here, whether they're saying it or not. How can we create even a line item in the budget on the P&L to send flowers to this team member's daughter just had surgery, just things like that. Something big, something little, just being aware of how you can contribute and show love and appreciation and gratitude to people within, within business. And because there, and there's an ROI, right? On a marketing investment, there's ROI on a depreciating asset that produces a widget, whatever. How do you measure ROI? Like how, how do we measure the ROI between this coffee pot experience? It's immeasurable. We know it's impactful and Again, I'm just brain dumping, trying to put some logic and structure to something that is tough to measure on paper, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Like you and I know that we've made each other's lives better immensely through this 
coffee experience and video sharing. So yeah, I'm digging into that. I'm doing a lot of research. I'm interviewing, like I did with Painted Baby, a lot of businesses that that focus on being people first. Yeah. Cool. And uh, that's 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 about a year and a half out, maybe two years out. But okay. right now I'm working on J- sharing JJ's story with the world. Okay, cool. <clears throat> I want to take you back, Painted Baby. You said you chickened out. So how did you get back in on track and then write the book. What what was the catalyst? What was your inspiration? So because, because of my story, right, is I dealt with rejection, striving, accomplishing a goal to prove something to somebody. So it's rejection, strive, accomplish a goal, still not feel loved and accepted. That's a pattern. That's a program that I run. So literally, when I started the book, and I'm glad the book took seven years to write, it's a better book, but I would get to this point where, okay, I'm striving and I would get the message out there as ready to launch as an author. And then somebody's rejection in some way, shape or form, this is at a deep level, would shut me down and say, nope, you're not, you're not good enough. You're not loved enough. It would take me back to the nine-year-old kid getting bullied every year, right about March or April, just my pattern. And what happened was in September of 2021, Mike Michalowicz released his book, uh, Get Different. It's a book about marketing. It's marketing that can't be ignored. He had reached out to me a year before that to say, hey, will you share the painted baby story with me? I know you've talked about it. You've, you started writing it. Um, he helped me get it going back in 2015. Different. I didn't know how or where or how it was going to come out. So I told him the story and he said, great, book comes out. I'm sitting on the beach just unplugged. It's a time when I get to vision, picture picture what's going on in life moving forward. And I download the book. And of course, I w- I'm going to go listen to that story first. I didn't chronologically go through the book. I said, ooh, Painted Baby's right there. I want to hear it. And I'm sitting on the beach in Spain, listening to this story and the value it brings. And he did an amazing job of sharing this story. It was an eight-minute piece of the book. Like, what a great hook, trailer, everything for the book. I go, wow, this is great. I said, Mike, this is awesome. Great job. Two weeks later, he's like, Matt, everybody's reaching out about Painted Baby. It's getting a lot of a lot of attention. And he's like, you got to finish your book. I don't think he remembers it. It wasn't this big moment with lights shining down. He's like, dude, when are you going to finish the book? When are you going to quit chickening out? We were hanging out in 2015 with a bunch of authors at a retreat. You said you were going to write this and you didn't. And I'm like, man, he's right. Like this story is impacting people. It's my story. I gave it to him to share, just like Dave gave me his story to share. But he shared it and it's impacting people. Like I owe this to people. So my feelings, although they matter, right? Not not more so than the impact this book is going to have on on people. And he called me out. So he actually did the process that I read about the three C's of changing my story. He called me out. He smacked me in the face with it. Go finish the book, man. Quit being a he and I call each other things offline. I can't say what they are. We're just <laughs> those kind of friends, right? Yeah. He goes, quit being, you know what? Finish the book. He called me out and he had me consider, right? So I sat there. I said, I internalized and I visualized what happens if I don't share this message? What what destination am I going to? And I didn't like that. It wasn't okay. And um, then I committed to change. So I made that commitment to change and I signed a book contract with a publisher. It's a pay for service publisher. And I, when I go all in with things financially, I made a big financial commitment to myself where there was no backing out. 
at the end of 2021. And then all 2022, we brought these seven years of starting and stopping and chickening out and being rejected and said, no, this is my calling. I'm doing it. And there's no going back. There's no safety net. Burn in the ships, right? Take the island, burn the ships. And um, then the book came out January of 2023. And I'm sitting at a restaurant three months later. Um, and somebody who had read the book, who was really struggling with something in life, came up. Uh, they may have had a few drinks, okay? It gives me this big, maybe I had a few drinks. They had a few drinks. Oh, that book is amazing. Oh my goodness. And I know it's about sales, but it really made me, it really made me think about, like they get kind of loose for a minute. It really made me think about um, the fact that I've been struggling with and considering ending my journey and not like taking my life. And your book, a business book, right? Those about sales literally stopped this person from making a really bad decision to like stop their journey. Holy cow. And I waited seven years for that because I was worried about how some person's comment who doesn't really matter anyway made me feel it's crazy. But that happens, right? That that that's my story. That's what happened. And it's it's not okay. We can't, we can't when we're called to do something and you have a message, people are gonna have feedback. Not all of it matters. I think yeah. that Matt is the subject for another book. I think you have to write that book. About feedback not mattering? Yeah. Because that's chapter nine in Painted Baby. That's that's one chapter right now. But oh yeah, I could dig into that for a long time. Yeah, there's lots of people that get influenced by that. I know when I was writing my book, the KPI book, I had this idea, and I was working. I was employed at the time, and I was in my annual appraisal. And the director said, so what are your plans then? What are you thinking of doing? I said, I have an idea for a book. And he said, great, the company doesn't have any books, so it would be good to have a book. What's what's your thought? So I said, um, I said, this is about key performance indicators. And he went, oh, no, let me stop you right there. He said, no one would be interested in key performance indicators. It would be dull, it would be boring, it wouldn't sell, no one would buy it, and furthermore, Jeff, you are not the person to write that book. I said, okay. So, long story short, I went out of his office, and I thought, well, he doesn't know about my plans, he doesn't know about the book, and if I was in his position, I probably would say the same thing. However... I do know about the book. I do know about the subject. So you know what? I'm going to write it anyway. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. And look and look what's happened. So unfortunately, Matt, we're coming to the end of the show now. You've done so many things. I would urge people to go to your website, mattshope.com. Certainly check out the foundation. Certainly check out that coffee boiler. It's it's quirky and great fun. You, <laughs> you have to have one. So matchshop.com. But before we end, I want to say to people, remember what I said before. If you want to make a difference, please share the show. Even if it's just with one person, I would appreciate it. But now I have a question that everybody loves. 
and I ask it to every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Macho, what is the most important thing you have ever learned? The most important thing I've ever learned is it's not about me. As much as as much as I think and we can think in business that it is, it's it's not about you. It's it's about others and giving and contributing and, and uplifting other people. That's what life is all about. I love that. Wonderful. Okay, well, that's it for today. Matt Shope, you have been truly amazing. It's it's a story that's gone in all kinds of directions today, but ended beautifully because it's about how our lives touch others. That's what your foundation is about. So you and Emily are doing wonderful work there with Cafe Severe. I applaud you for that. Your book, well, the second book, not so much the first one, but the second one is definitely about that. The work that you do and the new book that's coming is definitely about that. So I applaud you. Well done, sir. And great things with what is coming for you. And to you, the listener, thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I hope you've enjoyed the show today. This one has been a little bit different, but lots and lots of thought-provoking content in there. I hope it's helped to ignite your passion and to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your own dreams, no matter what your circumstances. So if you've enjoyed the show, please hit the follow button, leave a review. And as I say, please share. It really does make a huge difference because without your help, we can't succeed. So please go ahead and share. On another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me through our website at jeff-smith.com. You know, I really would love to hear from you. That's it for today. Thank you to Matt Shope. You've been fantastic. Thank you for you again for listening and have a great day. Yeah.